Welcome to El Petróleo es Nuestro, Episode 3, The Expropriation. I'm Brandon Seal. In the last episode, the supermajors settled into Mexico just as oil prices collapsed and the Mexican oil fields began to decline. Yet the oil industry remained perhaps the most important and almost certainly the most visible industry in Mexico. It was the largest single employer in Mexico, with some 18,000 direct employees and countless more indirect and support staff, and would remain the largest single employer until outstripped by the Mexican Teachers Union about a half a century later. And in the meantime, royalties and taxes on oil typically made up anywhere from between 15 and 35% of the national budget. In truth, however, the oil companies had operated in an uncomfortable limbo since 1917 when the newly promulgated Mexican Constitution specifically reserved all rights to hydrocarbons to the sovereign. A decade or so of contentious legal battles with the government had been resolved in the oil companies' favor, but had left them even further removed from Mexican society than ever. In 1932, El Aguila had begun in earnest to develop the largest oil field discovered to date in Mexico, the Poza Rica field. In 1937, and pay attention to the year, El Aguila and Mexican President Lázaro Cárdenas negotiated the first great post-revolutionary oil concession, a concession that seemed to suggest a path forward for continuing foreign investment in Mexico's oil fields. Under the terms of the concession, El Aguila would retain rights to explore and produce hydrocarbons for 50 years in exchange for a 35% royalty on all oil produced, an aggressive deal that Cárdenas could be proud of for sure, but also an apparent victory for El Aguila in protecting their right to the largest oil field in Mexico. Of course, to hear that Cárdenas, in 1937, was negotiating 50-year contracts with foreign oil companies probably comes as a surprise to everyone who knows what he will do only a year later. But Cárdenas is too interesting of a man to be categorized or caricatured in a simplistic fashion. He really is a unique hemispheric figure that probably doesn't get enough attention from Americans, even as he probably gets too much from Mexicans. Born in 1895 in Michoacán to a pool hall operator, Cárdenas rose through the horrors of the Mexican Revolution to become a brigadier general by the age of 25. He attached himself to President Plutarco Calles, who wielded power from the beginning of his own presidency in 1924 until he was sidelined by Cárdenas himself a few years into his own presidency, which began in 1934. Cardenas was an astute judge of men, with an intuitive knack for sensing weakness and forging new alliances that could destabilize old power structures. He won over the people with highly visible Rooseveltian projects to build schools and roads. He armed himself for future conflicts with the old capitalist class by creating the worker-friendly Mexican Labor Board, the Confederación de Trabajadores. He passed an expropriation law, allowing him to expropriate, well, pretty much anything, and pay it out over a 10-year period a law which he did not hesitate to use in the first years of his presidency, when he expropriated some 45 million acres of agricultural land and the entire national railroad system. The power struggles upending all aspects of Mexican society were, if anything, late in coming to the Mexican oil fields. But the 1930s brought depression, collapsed world demand for oil, and intense competition from foreign sources like Venezuela and Iran, but also the great East Texas oil field, all of which displaced Mexican oil and drove down investment by the foreign oil companies. Lower investment meant fewer jobs and wage cuts, which meant more frustrated, unionized, and increasingly politicized oil workers. After strikes in 1934 and 1935, Cardenas reached out to the oil workers' union and agreed to support their demands to be paid based on the oil company's, quote, ability to pay, rather than on the whims of market forces. Buoyed by the president's support, in 1935, 
Oil workers from across the industry, some 20,000 total, and across many different companies, joined together to form the Revolutionary Mexican Oil Workers Union, or the Sindicato Revolucionario de Trabajadores Petroleros de la República Mexicana, which I'll refer to by their post-1989 initials as the STPRM, or the Oil Workers Union. And as if all of this weren't ominous enough for the oil companies, by 1936, the Oil Workers Union, with implicit support from the presidential administration, had consolidated their demands. Some of them were reasonable enough, a 40-hour work week and six weeks of vacation a year. Others were more extreme, a guaranteed 85% pension at the age of 80, along with a 65 million peso lump sum wage hike payable to the union. And lastly, the replacement of all foreign professionals in the oil field by Mexicans within two years, with control by the union going forward of all companies' hiring and firing decisions. The companies were presented these demands on November 3, 1936, and given 10 days to respond. The more reasonable demands they were inclined to accept, the indemnity they were disposed to negotiate, but control over staffing decisions was a non-starter. The parties continued to posture into 1937, when the oil workers' union finally called a general strike in May. The oil companies responded by withdrawing as much capital and equipment as possible from the country and withholding refined products from domestic markets. The shortages caused acute pain to the Mexican economy, such that Cardenas intervened and convinced the oil workers to lift the strike while the Mexican Labor Board went to work adjudicating it. The arbitrators worked fast, attempting to forge a workable compromise, which they announced on August 3rd of 1937. The union's work week and vacation demands must be accepted, they said, and they agreed that the union's indemnity demand was extreme, and so reduced the award to 26 million pesos, much closer to the oil company's original number of 14 million than the union's original demand of 65. As for control over hiring and firing decisions, the board chose not to rule, perhaps hoping that the matter would just go away. The oil companies, however, resoundingly rejected the arbitrator's decision. They met with President Cardenas soon thereafter, but the meeting proved unproductive as well, and the oil companies moved quickly to hire scabs while they appealed the decision. The first appeal, however, had to go back to the labor board itself, and so, not surprisingly, the arbitrators chose not to overturn themselves on appeal. On December 18, 1937, they confirmed their original ruling. The oil companies were to pay a 26,332,756 peso lump sum indemnity, plus accept the union's work week and vacation demands. The companies took the decision to the Mexican Supreme Court. They claimed that they would rather shut down their operations than pay the lump sum indemnity or hand over staffing decisions a matter which had still not been clarified to their satisfaction. And 26 million pesos, they claimed, represented more than a year's combined profit for every single oil company operating in Mexico. How could they continue to operate under such circumstances? The union countered that the oil company's reported profits were based on phony transfer pricing strategies that hid the company's real profits offshore. So what's the truth of the matter here? Well, despite their claims after the expropriation, when it came time to value their assets... The fact is that the foreign oil companies were not doing particularly well in 1937. Most Mexican oil fields were in decline. But it sets up the coming expropriation battle as an interesting game theory case study. Maybe the oil companies took such a hard line because their worst outcome, expropriation, would allow them to monetize some deeply unprofitable assets. I'm not sure I'd buy that, though. I think the reason the companies took such a stubborn line was quite simple. Giving in to the union's demands would set a terrible precedent for these oil companies worldwide. And indeed, the struggle in Mexico was only the first of many, many more to come over the next half century.
most of which the oil companies would lose. But the oil companies had reason to hope that the Mexican Supreme Court might come to their rescue. In the 1920s, the Mexican Supreme Court had been a bastion of business-friendly holdovers from the Porfiriato. But by 1937, the Mexican Supreme Court was much more cowed, and they were unswayed by the oil company's arguments. They upheld the Labor Board's decision on March 1, 1938, and gave the companies until March 7th to pay the 26 million peso indemnity. The oil companies made one last appeal to President Cardenas himself. Cardenas would meet with the oil companies three times before the March 7th deadline, suggesting a genuine desire or at least openness to broker a compromise, but none was forthcoming. Exasperated and out of options, the companies revealed their true concern in the form of a question to Cardenas at their last meeting on the night of March 7th. How do we know that this is the last and final request, they asked the president. Because I guarantee it, Cardenas responded. You personally, someone asked him. I, the president of the republic, Cardenas said. And with that, he ended the meeting. The implication was clear. Pay the money. They didn't. And so on March 9th, the Mexican State Department alerted its delegations around the world to be ready to handle the repercussions of a possible expropriation of the foreign oil company's assets. The oil companies went into a panic. They withdrew all their personnel and all remaining funds from Mexico. They teed up their respective State Departments, who gave ominous signals to Mexican delegations, such that Mexico's ambassador to the U.S. was certain that the U.S. was preparing to invade. On March 18th, with rumors of an expropriation swirling, the oil companies approached Cardenas one last time with an offer. They would pay the full 26 million pesos. It would break them, they claimed, but they would pay it. Yet they simply could not accept handing over staffing decisions to the unions. That would be nothing more than a long-term recipe for extortion, and a guarantee that they could never make money on their investments in Mexico. Why didn't Cardenas accept the oil company's last-minute offer? This would still have been a huge win for the oil workers' union and its members, and it would have saved the dignity of the Mexican presidency. There's really only two answers to that question. One is that Cardenas had always intended to expropriate the oil properties, but I don't think the evidence supports that. Look to 1937, the year before, when he had just negotiated a 50-year concession with El Aguila with a 35% royalty, not the actions of a man intending to expropriate the property the next year. Now, I, I think the reason Cardenas couldn't accept the last-minute offer was more pragmatic. First, it appeared that the oil companies were now conceding that they could, in fact, afford the indemnity despite their vocal protestations to the contrary over the last year, calling into question how much they could have really afforded in the first place and, in fact, their honesty throughout the entire ordeal. Second, you have to appreciate here the general skepticism that Mexicans have toward their politicians. There were already rumors that Obregón and Calles had been paid off by the oil companies in their respective compromises in the 1920s. If Cardenas had let the oil companies off the hook with anything less than a very public defeat, the perception would have been that he was paid off. By the same token, future events would bear out oil companies' concern that this was just the first of many such shakedowns to come around the world. And the companies would learn their lesson well in how they would negotiate with foreign governments in the future because they would never forget what happened next when President Cardenas took to the radio at 10 p.m. on March 18, 1938. Cardenas detailed for the Mexican people the oil company's refusal to accept the decision of the Mexican Labor Board and the Mexican Supreme Court. Sure, they claimed that they could never pay the judgment rendered against them, he added, but only because for decades they had played pricing games that allowed them to realize their profits offshore and underinvest in Mexico. 
The companies had been systematically incentivized, subsidized, and flat-out spoiled by previous administrations. And what had the nation's profit been on it? Cardenas had seen the oil fields firsthand, he reminded the people, as military governor of Costa Rica years earlier. In the oil field towns, he had seen that there were no company-sponsored schools, soccer fields, or hospitals. In some cases, there wasn't even clean water or electricity. Meanwhile, oil company men lived in comfort, behind mosquito nets, eating refrigerated foods and protected by armed forces that operated outside the law. And now, when the nation called upon them to pay the men whose toil they had grown rich from, they pulled up stakes, stripped their own oil fields of anything not cemented into the ground, and took their money out of the country. Are these the actions of men who really believe in the justice of their cause? Cardenas asked the Mexican people. The favorite image of Standard Oil in a previous generation was that of an octopus, its tentacles manipulating the levers of the economy. For Cardenas, the foreign oil companies were a straight-up vampire squid, sucking the life out of Mexico. Accordingly, under the expropriation law and his powers as chief executive of the nation, Cardenas continued, he was hereby expropriating all of the, quote, equipment, installations, buildings, pipelines, refineries, storage tanks, railroad and auto tankers, docks, gas stations, and all other fixed and intangible properties, end quote, of the American, English, and Dutch oil companies. Note what he didn't say was being expropriated, the oil itself. This, Cardenas would maintain, already belonged to the nation. The announcement was met with spontaneous demonstrations of support throughout Mexico. A six-hour parade through the night ensued in Mexico City. Cardenas toured the nation to rally support for his action. Over the next five days, demonstrations followed in every major city, especially the oil field towns. Men swore their lives to the cause. Women offered to sell off their jewelry and clothing to help pay off the upcoming indemnity to the oil companies. One person contributed a live chicken. For Mexico, the oil expropriation became that one glorious, morally uncomplicated moment that every national mythology needs. It was Philadelphia and Yorktown and the Battle of New Orleans all rolled into one. And with it, Cardenas secured his place as the purest embodiment of the spirit of the Mexican Revolution, whose original dream had finally been realized. Or so goes one version of the story. Because history, particularly 20th century Mexican history, is often just propaganda by another name. And it's worth examining some of the claims about the expropriation more carefully. There is no doubt that the expropriation generated strong emotions. And particularly among Cardenas' supporters, it would become the seminal moment of his presidency and of the revolution. It had to. Pemex would become such an integral symbol of Mexico over the next 70 years, and more specifically, of the governing Institutional Revolutionary Party, or the PRI by its Mexican initials, that it needed a mythology and a creation myth that tied it to the party and to the nation. But other events following the expropriation undermine, I think, any notion of its being unanimously supported. Though he was perhaps using the expropriation only as a pretext, the governor of the state of San Luis Potosí rose up in revolt, claiming that the expropriation represented executive overreach. The business class muffled their discontent out of fear that Cardenas might target them next, but mobilized politically to form a rival political party, the Partido Acción Nacional, or PAN, the next year. So ambivalent was the nation, in fact, that the PRI's chosen successor to Cardenas, Manuel Avila Camacho, barely squeaked into the presidency in 1940, and some sources dispute the fact that he won it all. And when you hear about the Cardenas administration dropping leaflets from the sky, sending teachers' unions out into the countryside to help, quote, educate the population about the expropriation, and realize the control that Cardenas' government had over the Mexican press, I can't help but recall 
that in 1938, we are in the great age of propaganda and mass mobilization of populations for political causes. Everyone knows what's going on in Europe right now, right? The international reaction to the expropriation was no less interesting. The oil companies went straight to their state departments and organized a boycott of Mexican oil and a general embargo of various other goods and technologies. Britain severed diplomatic relations and demanded the full and immediate payment of all damages suffered by its citizens since 1910. The Netherlands, the Dutch part of Royal Dutch Shell, refused to recognize the expropriation either and effectively confiscated certain Mexican vessels in Belgian ports. And the American government, who had twice invaded Mexico in the last 20 years, who had demanded legal ratification of oil concessions as a condition of recognizing Mexico's post-revolutionary government, and who had made so much noise prior to the expropriation that the Mexican ambassador thought an invasion was imminent, bravely posed the question to Cardenas, how much? The Roosevelt administration almost immediately accepted the legality and even the propriety of the action. The oil companies who had effectively refused to negotiate throughout the labor dispute, counting on the support of their home governments in the event that they lost, felt abandoned. I think the mildness of the U.S. government response is actually the most critical component of this drama. Then as now, the perception throughout the world was widespread that the oil companies exerted undue influence on U.S. foreign policy. But in 1938, other policy considerations were at play. Roosevelt had articulated an actively anti-imperialistic, quote, good neighbor policy based on non-intervention in the affairs of Latin American countries. In part, this was meant to open new markets for American businesses down south while assuring the more fragile Latin American democracies that America's ambitions were commercial rather than imperial. But it was strategic as well. In a world about to be torn asunder by World War II, Roosevelt wanted to make sure that the part of the world closest to the United States was on his side. And especially with Mexico, Roosevelt had good reason to worry. Politically, Mexico doesn't really line up that well on the same left-right spectrum that the Anglo-American world uses. Though Mexico's revolution seemed to be driven by left-wing and socialistic impulses, Mexico also had strong fascistic, corporatist, and phalangist elements that gave hope to the German, Japanese, and Italian governments that saw in Mexico a potential source of badly needed oil and a possible third home front for America to have to contend with should she enter the war on the side of the Allies. And indeed, following the expropriation, Cardenas turned immediately to the Axis powers. By 1939, 65% of Mexico's oil experts were going to Germany, Japan, or Italy. The prospect of an Axis client state on America's southern border, and don't forget the Zimmerman telegram from 1917, was suddenly quite real. It should be noted as well that Roosevelt and his administration harbored little sympathy for the American oil companies either. Another powerful contingent of American economic interests had his ear. American banks were, if not in favor of the expropriation, quite interested that it should go smoothly. War with Mexico would almost certainly halt Mexico's payments on their external debts. And on the other hand, the nationalization of the largest industry in Mexico would actually improve the Mexican government's collateral package materially. And if Roosevelt had to choose between bankers and oilmen, well, don't forget, Roosevelt was borrowing quite a lot of money himself at that time as well. But to be fair, the Roosevelt administration's soft line worked to the extent that it brought Mexican oil back into American markets pretty quickly. And the American oil companies all came to terms with Mexico within five years. In 1940, Sinclair Oil became the first to reach a settlement, but all of the other oil companies had done so by 1943. In 1941, the U.S. reopened credit to Mexico to help stabilize the peso. And by 1944, the U.S. government was lending directly to Mexico to expand their expropriated refineries, much to the consternation of those refineries' former owners. 
Royal Dutch Shell held out for longer, until 1947, before settling with the Mexican government, and probably got a much better deal in the end for doing so. But as psychologically traumatic as the expropriation was for the oil companies, financially, they weathered the event respectably well. It was Mexico that really suffered. In the aftermath of the expropriation, prices for refined products surged by 20%, as refinery output fell by 48%. The peso plummeted from 3.6 pesos to a dollar to 5 pesos to a dollar. In gross dollar amounts, Mexican crude exports collapsed from $42 million to $16 million in 1938, as the number of producing wells fell from 1,039 to 756. And instead of a 26 million peso wage increase, by the end of 1938, Cardenas was forced to cut wages by 8-15% to 15% for all oilfield workers. I won't get into passing judgment on the wisdom of the expropriation yet, but it certainly became the defining act of Cardenas' presidency. As such, I'll raise the question again here that I asked earlier. Had Cardenas always intended to expropriate the oil industry? Was it a purely political move meant to rally national support? I still think the answer is no. I think that Cardenas and the oil companies negotiated each other into a corner. I'm totally sympathetic to the oil companies being unwilling to negotiate at gunpoint, but I also don't think Cardenas had many practical alternatives once the battle had been joined. After studying it for a bit now, my view is that the expropriation wasn't an ideological act at all. It was simply a political one, the act of a very crafty and astute politician. Cardenas was such a successful politician because he was an astute judge of the location of power. He used this ability to unify disparate power bases to build alliances that could undermine competing power structures to his own. Early in his term, when reactionary elements challenged the power of the federal government, he confiscated their land holdings. What's a few recalcitrant landowners when compared to the general welfare of rural Mexico? So he rallied the agricultural laborers and the teachers and built a coalition around them. So when the oil companies came and challenged his authority, he pushed them to the brink as well. What's the investment of a few foreign capitalists when compared to ensuring government control of the nation's largest industry? So he rallied the oil workers and native Mexican industries, along with the oil company's opponents in their home countries, to undermine the oil company's opposition. But it cut against his leftist supporters as well at times. Later, when the oil workers' union began to vie with the government for control over the newly nationalized oil industry, Cardenas turned the labor board and the apparatus of the state against them, ensuring that control of the industry would reside with the presidency, not the union halls. In this light, the expropriation becomes merely a demonstration of artful statesmanship, rather than the premeditated act of a radical. What I actually think is the more interesting question is, where were the oil companies' allies within Mexico? Why didn't the Mexican business class raise up against the terrifying precedent of expropriation? Yes, there was the San Luis Potosí governor, and yes, there was the formation of the Pan political party, but truthfully... These men were opponents of Cardenas, not allies of the oil companies. Well, the Mexican business class has never been entirely comfortable with the kind of Anglo-American-style laissez-faire economic system that dominated the early Mexican oil field. The Mexican right has always been more corporatist than free market. To this day, a conservative Mexican businessman probably has more in common with a left-leaning Mexican bureaucrat than he does with a similarly conservative American businessman. And so, Mexican businessmen never really cracked the pre-expropriation oil field. As I've said before, for most of the 1920s and 30s, 75-90% to 90 of the oil production in Mexico was foreign-owned. The entire industry was geared toward Anglo-American markets. All six refineries at the time were located on the Gulf Coast, in tune to the needs of international markets, not domestic ones. And with Anglo-American business models and legal models predominating, it would have been difficult for a Mexican business to even get a foot in the door. 
this applied to Mexican professionals as well. What need did the oil companies have for Mexican professionals when their financing documents were in English, their service providers came from the U.S., and their contracts invoked Anglo-American law? No, not only did the oil companies lack allies in the Mexican business class during the expropriation battle, but the Mexican business class had come to appreciate that there might be opportunities available to them were the foreign oil companies to be removed. And this, I would argue, was Cardenas' most masterful stroke of political coalition building, and what would allow his PRI party to rule Mexico unchallenged for the next 60 years. He united the corporatist Mexican business class with the statist Mexican labor movement by offering them a national oil company that could subsidize Mexican business while employing Mexican labor. The product of this compromise was Petróleos Mexicanos, or Pemex, the linchpin holding together the coalition that would rule Mexico for the next 70 years. In the next episode, Pemex is born, and many of her great and peculiar characteristics take form. Pemex will struggle to put the expropriation behind it, but will ultimately make Mexico one of the most energy-independent nations of the age, an age that the first director of Pemex would call the Golden Age of Pemex. Thank you for listening. As promised, I want to give a special shout-out to our first three reviewers on iTunes, Texmex2314, Real Montaño, and JQN555. I really appreciate your taking the time to leave feedback and would like to encourage others to do so as well on our iTunes page. Additionally, please remember to subscribe and let your friends know they can download episodes at www.brandonseal.com. For this episode, I'm going to recommend another of Jonathan C. Brown's books, this one a collection of articles, the aptly named Mexican Petroleum Industry in the 20th Century. Despite its name, it's more focused on the social and cultural components of oil in Mexican society than an industry guy like I would prefer, but the articles pull from good primary sources and give an interesting sort of late Cold War perspective to our topic. Hasta la próxima.